Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Here we go. Thank you, George. That was really enthusiastic. <laughs> Boy, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. Checking for performance enhancing drugs. Yeah. It's, it's that reception yeah. before the talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, my name is Roy Eisenhardt, and it's my pleasure tonight to be your host uh, with uh, our guest, obviously, uh, Esther Wojcicki, who is, I'm sure, well-known to many of you. Uh, and the event that brings Esther here tonight is the publication, or recent publication, of her new book, How to Raise Successful People. I've kept this face down when my kids would walk around my house because I didn't want them to think I was trying to re-engineer or reverse engineer. Um, but it is a, it is a fantastic um, synthesization of so many concepts that those of you, whether you've been parents or just been siblings or children, you've experienced in this process of how do we learn to operate in this world. And so we're going to spend uh, a lot of time with Esther this evening going through a lot of the ideas of her book, which have germinated from her vast experience throughout her life. So let's, um, let's start with what brought you to writing a, a book like this? What was the incentive that got you to sit down and with your laptop and punch it out? Good question. So, because it was a lot of work, and it took me a year and a half to write it, and I worked every night from 9 to 1 in the morning. Wow. That's how it works. I, if, if I missed a day, I would forget what I was talking about the day before. So I had to keep my pace up. And, um, yeah, and I was a little tired, I must mm-hmm. admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so my motivation for doing this was, um, number one, was really the parents at the school. I had a lot of parents who were asking me for tips. It's like, you know, what did you do to raise your daughters? And, um, and I was like, hmm, I don't really know. Let me think about it for a while. Mm. And um, so that was the one question happening a lot. But then also, this was um, backed up by another question, and that came from educators. And the question was like, what did you do to get all those kids to be so interested in learning to write mm-hmm. and be so interested in taking the program? Because I have hundreds of kids taking this journalism program, and it's the largest in the nation. And so, like, why? Yeah. We should clarify that you you're, you work at Palo Alto High School. Yeah, I teach at Palo Alto High School. And for those of you who don't know, I actually had to say this to a lot of audiences. That is a public school. Because they, <laughs> they see the picture of the new media arts building, and they think it's a private school. Yeah. But it's really Palo Alto public school. And um, the uh, so the second one was a lot of teachers were asking me this, but then there's probably a third reason, and that is delegations of teachers from other countries were coming. So from Brazil, Mexico, China, Japan, and I think the biggest group was like a group of 30 superintendents from China. I was like, oh, I've got to write this book, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's a long trip. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they could just read the book. Yeah, right. <laughs> they don't have to come. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. Um, it, the title actually raises a very um, existential question as to what the term successful means, how to raise successful people. Um, and I, I suspect we could go around the audience and come up with many different thoughts about what makes one's life successful. So why don't you explore what you think that means? Well, um, actually, this is a really good question because a lot of people ask me, so what do I think success is? Mm -hmm. And I think a common standard of success is that you earn a lot of money or you have a really long title. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) that seems very important. Yeah. And um, so I want you to know my definition of success is not either one of those two. I think that you need enough money to have a place to live, food to put on the table, you know, trips that you want to take. But being a billionaire doesn't qualify as success in my book unless for some reason you are then, you have a purpose that you are going to use your billions to somehow make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. And... um, if I look around at a lot of the billionaires that I know, I think that they're working on, you know, getting, figuring out what they want to do in order to make a difference mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, some of them, um, speaking of like Bill Gates, for example, he, he has more of a, an idea. Maybe it's because he's been doing it longer. So the malaria, he wants to get rid of malaria. You know, he believes in, donating all his money, with the exception of 1%, um, to some way to improve the world. And he's very passionate about it, and I would say he's got a lot of people surrounding him that are working on the same mission. So I would say that, you know, he represents somebody who I think is pretty successful because he he has the resources to do what he wants. But you don't have to have a billion dollars. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of kids, students, that are doing a lot of very successful things. They have a passion in life. Um, they have enough resources to live a you know pretty comfortable situation as a student or maybe 20, 25, 30-year-old. And they're working on something that they care about. And they have a sense of control so I think that they believe in themselves, they trust themselves, and they are not checking left and right to see what the neighbor thinks or what the relatives think or what their parents think. They're actually doing something where they feel in control and supported and working on a project that yeah. they care about. So that is part of my definition of success. You use it often in the book, you use the word meaningful. Right. So I'd like to ask you to go on that because that has a different semantic connotation, of course, than success. Success is often measured by how somebody else is looking at you. And meaningful strikes me as something that's internal to you. Well, meaningful, again, is this sense of purpose that you personally have. Right. Um, as opposed to the success that uh, you might think um, 
something that you are doing because you think other people will respect you more for it. Mm-hmm. So that is not meaningful to you personally. It's important to do something that you care about. So, for example, those 17 UN Sustainable Goals. Maybe you have something in the world that you personally want to do, and it doesn't have to even relate to the UN goals. It could be, you know, a lot of the products and companies that we have today, those young people, entrepreneurs, they were out there to somehow make the world a better place, and then the byproduct is they were very successful. Mm-hmm. So that was meaningful to them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you need to do something that is meaningful to you. So one of the things um, that I guess I wanted to mention is that um, if it's not meaningful to the person that's doing it, it's usually meaningful to the parent or to the grandparent or to no, someone else. That's different. Um, <laughs> just want you to know yeah. that is not the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get yeah. to that. The reason I'm, I'm dwelling on this, on the word is because really what we're doing is talking about how you as a parent or as an educator um, can help your children, as they mature and so forth, achieve this end goal of being successful or having meaningful lives or whatever. So we kind of are defined, we're reverse engineering back. And what I'd like to do is go, you have a wonderful acronym that you use as kind of your framework for uh, discussing this. And I'd like to pattern that acronym, TRIC. Right, and um, each letter obviously stands for a concept. So let's go through that, and we may fringe off at time to time on other issues. But let's start with T. Trick. So yeah, I, I put together this acronym to help people remember what I thought was important, and it also helps me remember too. <laughs> Just in case you yeah. think I always remember, I don't. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Well, so TRIC stands for, the T stands for trust. And R, respect, independence, collaboration, and kindness. And so I say that the first thing that you need to do is to trust your children or to show them that you trust them and or to trust as a teacher you trust them. And so one of the things that I did in class and one of the things I realized after I was, you know, trying to figure out how to write this book, what I had done, I realized that I trusted my students much more than other teachers ever trusted their students. Um, I gave them a lot of responsibility, and but meaningful responsibility, not just, you know, things because I thought it was cute or whatever. And... Um, and that meant a lot to them. Mm-hmm. And so since I was the teacher, and still am the teacher of journalism, when kids go out and get a story, the story can be very controversial. I trust them to get the information right mm-hmm. and to check their sources. Because what are they doing? They are going to publish that for the entire city of Palo Alto to read and if they get the story wrong, 
it's going to impact everybody, not just me and the program sure. and themselves, and the, but also the people that they write about. So the students know that this is really important and that I am trusting them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. When you trust kids and when they rise to the occasion, they then trust themselves. And what you want, you want kids that believe in themselves. It's really important. The, the word trust implies actually kind of a psychological state. Um, and I often find it hard to communicate that, that I trust you, right? You don't tend not to say that. I trust you. I trust you. How do you um, actually have the students understand that they are being trusted so that they actually feel the impact of, of what you're saying. Well, so I do it by doing. In other mm. words, it's what I do, not what I say. Right. I think it's because people, kids especially, they see what you do. Mm-hmm. And um, so, for example, I mean, the rules of the class... Most teachers make up the rules of the class. You come into the class, you know, the first day of class, you get a whole list of rules. This is how the class works. And um, I just made these up, and this is the way the class is going to function, and memorize them, and then, you know, make sure you follow them. Mm-hmm. I don't do that. <laughs> the idea is the kids, These are. this is our goal. Our goal is to put out a newspaper, a magazine, television, radio, whatever we're doing, because we have a lot of programs. You, the students, you come up with the rules. What do you think we should be doing? How do you think the class should run? And let's talk about it. What are the rules for this particular class? This is our goal. This is what we want to do. We have a newspaper. It's 24 to 28 pages, full size every three weeks. How are we going to do it? So if I'm doing that, aren't I trusting them? Mm-hmm. Just in the act of doing that, mm-hmm. I'm like, you're going to come up with the rules, and then I, the teacher, I'm going to follow your rules. So that's one thing. Another thing is, for example, taking role. According to the state law, I have to take role. Okay, that's fine. I'll take role. But I can have somebody that is a pre-role taker. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> I'll give it to one of the kids. You guys take role. Tell me who's here. Tell me who's not here. Who's late. Who wasn't late. Whatever. And then let me know. And then, you know, I'll check it off. See if it's okay. I mean, you can imagine how significant that is to a kid. You know, you're put in the responsible position of taking role. for This is a large class, 60 to 70 kids. So you're going around making sure people are there and so forth. Mm -hmm. That, I'm, I'm demonstrating it. And, um... So I have a lot of activities like that that, in which the kids actually know they're responsible as opposed to me just talking about it. Because talking is, you know, a lot of us have a lot of hot air, so including me. No, (laughs) You make a very important point because you can... I'm going to go to the parenting context now. You know, your kid is going to a party and... You say, well, what, uh, they, they're going to watch a movie, right? You say, well, what movie are you going to watch? Well, that immediately, just by asking that question, you're implying that you don't trust them to use their judgment, that if the movie is perhaps not R-rated or whatever you want to call it, that maybe they just ought to call and get a ride home. 
so it's so easy unconsciously just by asking you know, a, what seems like an innocent question to suggest you don't trust your child's own judgment. And that's why I find your answer very interesting because so much of it is in behaviors and, and how behaviors are interpreted. So, so I think I, I build scaffolding. So in other words, you know, movies, for example, um, you know, they all have ratings. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... For my own children, grandchildren, you know, I would say, well, these are the ratings you should see, you know, a PG-13 movie or yeah, whatever. Right. Um, if they say they want to go and watch movies at someone's house or whatever, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't even ask them. I would just say, yeah. I hope you're seeing a movie that's appropriate. Yeah, and that's the key. I mean, I make the mistake of asking, and, and uh-huh. that's, that's why you wrote the book, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. I. I. Well. So in the book, you'll read this story about what I did with my daughter, my granddaughters, um, two of them. I think there were eight at the time, eight or nine or something, and they, they um, needed school supplies. I think it was in August or something. You know, school starts and they needed school supplies. So, they. My daughter's like, well, why don't you take them to Target? Okay, I'll take them to Target. And um, I figured. Also, I was supposed to take another grandchild and have a haircut. You know, he kind of looked like, you know, a little bushy. And um, so I said, well, let's do both of these at the same time. So I said to the girls, well, look, I'm just going to drop you at Target by yourself, okay? You just go shopping and find the stuff you need and then call me and I'll bring over the credit card. And then I took the boy to this um, haircut place. I forgot what it's called, Supercuts or something or... I don't know what I knew. Those yeah. And haircut I said, place. what kind of haircut do you want? And he told me. And I was like, well, you go in there and tell him to cut your hair. And so yeah. so he did. Yeah. You know. Meantime, I was driving back. I get this phone call from my daughter. She's like, um, so how's the shopping going with the girls? And I said, well, I dropped them off at Target. I haven't heard yet. <laughs> She's like, you yeah. did what, Mom? Yeah. You Drop them at Target by themselves? I was like, I was like, yeah. She's like, well, that's so dangerous, Mom. How could you possibly do that? I was like, well, last time I'd been at Target, it was like really safe. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah back in the 30s. So here yeah. we go. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it, it interesting because in that fact pattern it was actually your daughter's kids that you were trusting. But right, your daughter I, I, wasn't quite on the same. Well, she's part of this teaching. generation that doesn't trust anything, yeah. right? <laughs> so that's yeah. what I'm trying to calm everyone down. I yeah. think it's pretty safe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's a successful person. So yeah, get... and and well, and I just tell you, the kid that got his hair cut, he looked okay too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we got T. Let's go to R. Oh, R. <laughs> Respect. Respect. So let me tell you, you know, all teenagers come up with a little unusual ideas. Wacky, to be honest. And um, and all, I mean, most of the kids come up with ideas that you're like, really? You want to do that? Like, how are we going to work that out? Um, you know, if it's not hurting anybody, if it doesn't cost a lot of extra money, I mean, so... Okay, I just like let them do it. Mm-hmm. The, the crazy ideas. So again, here's another one of my granddaughters. 
she decided she wanted to make this thing, I swear to God, it's called slime. I was like, what? This look, and then I looked at it, it looked just awful, you know, <laughs> disgusting. Yeah. She's like, I want to make slime. I was like, oh. and how do we do it? You have to buy flour or something. It's like all these things. All right, again, I was like, okay, doesn't look like it's going to hurt anything. Don't drop it on the white carpet. <laughs> and so yeah. she go, we go to the store, we buy all this stuff. She's busy making all this slime day after day after day. The next thing I know... She wants to videotape herself making slime. Uh, not hurting anybody, right? Right. Videotaping herself making slime. Okay, who's going to want to watch this? <laughs> not me. Yeah. And the only thing I was worried about was the damage to the carpet. <laughs> she wasn't worried yeah. about that at all. Anyway, to make a long story short... She videotaped herself making slime. Then she uploaded this video to YouTube. Mm-hmm. And then she put slime for sale next to her video <laughs> and started herself a whole slime-making business. Wow. Yeah. So, and I don't know, somebody bought the slime because she has a pretty active business going. <laughs> <laughs> this is your granddaughter? This is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the slime business. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm telling you, this yeah. is something I would never do. So I respected yeah. her idea. And, um, you know, like I'm telling you, these ideas can be mm-hmm. a little out there. Yeah. It also implied that she could make a mistake and you weren't going to sanction her. Right. Right. Unless she got it on the carpet. Well, right. Actually, I bought a little plastic thing to right. cover the carpet. <laughs> But that's a key part of it, right? Is saying, okay, this might get all screwed up, but I'm going to respect your idea. That's right. No, and actually in school, you know, the kids come up with really crazy ideas for stories or for magazines. You know, now we have like eight magazines. And, you know, some of these magazines started out with really unusual ideas, um, I mean, one of them, there was a whole group of girls that came together and like, we want to do a magazine. And the main focus of our magazine is going to be, um, we're going to teach people how to braid hair. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, and anything else in the magazine? Uh, then we're going to invent cookies and we're going to take pictures of the cookies and then we're going to have our recipe. And we'll publish that too. So what would you say? I'd say I'd prefer the cookies to the hair. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I was like, is anybody going to really want to read this? Yeah. But I didn't say it, fortunately. I was like, okay, sounds like an interesting idea. Um, Okay, we'll try that. Yeah. And so they did it. They did the hair and the cookies, and and then they added fashion. They're going to take pictures, get dressed up in unusual outfits, take pictures, write stories. So I let them do it. Uh I thought nobody would ever read this magazine, right? No one. Turns out I was totally wrong. It was Mm -hmm. off the chart. Everybody wanted to read this magazine. So there goes my idea, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. (laughs) T-R-I. I. Okay, so trust and respect results in giving kids independence. Mm -hmm. You cannot... Do one without the other. It's all related. So 
they, I give them a lot of independence to do things, come up with ideas that they want to. I mean, there are, there's somebody, or maybe a couple of people here in the audience that went on some of these New York trips with me. So I used to take 50 kids to New York for five days. You can imagine what that was like. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what I did, I actually had to stop. And the reason I stopped after 16 years was not because anybody was naughty or bad or I lost somebody. Uh, was <laughs> it, the reason I stopped was because of all the allergies. You know, back when I first started, there was not every kid had some kind of nut yeah, allergy. Food allergy. Yeah, yeah, food allergy. So that got to be a bit of a problem. I had to, like, supervise all the food. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, getting back to the independence, the purpose of that trip was to teach them how to get around New York City mm-hmm. independently. So the first two days, they had to kind of stay with me. You can imagine how it was. One teacher and 50 kids in the group. <laughs> it looked like a mob. Yeah. Um, but I did have chaperones. Other The ratio was 1 to 10, so the other chaperones were there as well. But that was one of my goals. It wasn't just sightseeing. It was like independence. Can you mm-hmm. learn to get around independently? And then it's also part of the teaching in my class, my journalism class, you know, independence. Can you come up with the ideas that matter to you and that might matter to the readers? Mm-hmm. That's independence. And then as a parent, it's like, what can you, let's say we want to go someplace this weekend. What are your ideas for where we want to go? Yeah. As opposed to just my ideas. I'm the parent. I Maybe I know best, but still, let's respect your indep- idea for mm-hmm. independence. And... Um, Independence. Maybe they can help determine what we're going to have for dinner. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, I used to send my kids actually shopping. <laughs> I would uh, for food. Mm-hmm. So you know we'd all be in the same store. Okay, it wasn't the Target experience, but we'd all be in the same store, and then they could help put together the meal. So that's independence. You know, you want to give them as much opportunity to be independent as possible. Because that develops their self-confidence, their self-esteem. Yeah, yeah. The more you do for them, the less less they feel good about themselves. Yeah, the term self-esteem is a key one, as you say. Um, T-R-I-C. C. C stands for collaboration. And so I believe in everything needs to be collaborative. Parenting should be collaborative. Talk to your kids about the rules that you're instituting. Why are you doing that? What's the reason? Just talk to them. In the class, the same thing. Talk to the kids about like what it is that you're doing. Why? What are the goals? It's a common goal. So if it's not an adversarial relationship between the teacher and the students, and there's no policing, you know, because then they want to. They're, they're, they understand, and then they're part of the whole team. It's a team effort. Mm-hmm. And then when you're working, like, I use journalism as a way to teach these skills. I'm not trying to train a whole new generation of journalists. It's like skills for the 21st century. It's like, how do you gather information? And then how do you make sure you write it up in a way that other people want to read it and that it's accurate and that it's got all the information presented in a, in a easy-to-read manner, you collaborate with your peers. All the work is peer-to-peer edited. Mm-hmm. Peer-to-peer, the layout on the page is peer-to-peer. It's all collaborative. So what kind of skills do they come out with when they graduate? 
They know how to work in teams. They know how to collaborate. They know how to disagree uh, without getting upset about it. They don't have to worry about, like, what is everybody thinking? Because they know that they can talk about it with their peers. So that's, collaborate is really important. And it's the same thing in parenting. You know, collaborate. Why is it that you want certain skills and certain, mm-hmm. the way, the house to run the way you want it to run? Talk to them. Uh, honestly, it's, it works as a, like a charm. What do you do when you start to see, um, hierarchies evolve within the collaborative group so that some students are becoming the alphas and some are kind of being pressed down. How do you restore collaboration? That's Well, so one of the things that I have the kids read, especially ones that are, might have a little problem with this, you know, there's a very old book that has some very good ideas, and it's called... Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, <laughs> I swear, still works today. <laughs> yeah. I bought a lot of them. You know, they're, that's like five ninety five a book. Mm-hmm. It's like, hand it out. Yeah. Here, read. The, and you know, you can read the whole book in a weekend, or you read it in a night. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's talk about some of the things that you're doing that might be creating problems for your friends and for you. And then it's, it's again, talking to them about it, as opposed to just enforcing it. When you just enforce something, then you have to be the policeman there all the time. It takes a lot of time and energy. You want them to do yeah. it. You want it to be inner-directed. Uh, for a long time, in an educational context, collaboration was almost synonymous with cheating. Right? It was. <laughs> yes. As a matter of fact, when I first started to teach in 1984, it was against the rules to have kids collaborate on homework. It was called cheating. As actually all the way through 2000, when kids went home and did work, if they called each other on the phone, talked to each other about what was going on, it was called cheating. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I had to sort of break the rules when I was first teaching because... I believed that the most effective way to learn something was collaboratively. I didn't really care how you learned it. I just wanted you to learn it. If your friend helped you to learn it, great. You know, if you learn better just by doing it yourself, that's fine. But I think most kids, by doing it and working with their peers, they learn it best. Right. And it also, I, I think, helps and with gender stereotypes where you can dissolve gender stereotypes like the guys are in charge and the girls are supposed to you know be subordinate or whatever right i, I just mix them all term. up it's like work yeah with no but it, <laughs> when i went to grammar school there was a boy's entrance and a girl's entrance right yes oh my god yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, I went in the boys' entrance, but, but but today we're evolving in the society where those distinctions should not be thought of, and I think that you know the system that you described to me um, is is very constructive in in that regard. Is my take? Yeah. Do you do you see it or that way, or do you yeah. take it for granted? I think there's we're all together. Yeah. Shouldn't be a girls' entrance and a boys' entrance. Well, I agree well, I think that. the bathrooms. Well, yeah. look well, at into the, even today different. we have yeah. unisex bathrooms. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, uh, 
that's another entire discussion. I think yeah. we'll probably avoid that. That's one. your next book. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, my next book, remember, is about... Yeah, we'll go there. Yes. Uh, she, I got a hint of what the next <laughs> book is, but I'm saving that for my punchline. The- you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So, um, K. We're on K. T-R-I-C-K. K. K, K is the number one thing missing. K is kindness. Kindness, compassion, empathy. You need to have that everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I don't care what grade level of student that you're talking about. Most of them would say there's no kindness mm-hmm. in the schools. And, um, and I think it's related to the grading system that we all unfortunately don't like but are stuck with. Because um, the, a lot of harsh stuff going on, um, that's causing a lot of anxiety for parents, a lot of anxiety for kids, and a lot of um, unnecessary, um, as we see, cheating that took place, you know, with the hello helicopter parenting syndrome where they hired this guy to come in and, uh, you know, Basically, erase your kids' answers on the SAT exam. Uh, that was or get you a scholarship on the sailing team. On the sailing team, when yeah. you've never been on a boat, yeah, that's yeah. right. So, um, but you know, a lot of parents might say, "Oh, I was just being kind." That is not kind. You know, kindness is you know, empathizing, talking to people being able to understand how being a friend kindness is you know forgiving i mean cheating on a test i mean the people that are the victims in that particular situation were the kids right. the kids whose parents didn't believe in them that's a yeah. tragic situation right. i mean not just when it's happening but for life so um i think one of the things I'm trying to get across in this book, this is an anti-helicopter parenting book, where your kids are going to be just fine. I mean, you don't have to push on them. You know, if they don't somehow get into an Ivy League school, it doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. In fact, um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book called David and Goliath. Chapter 3 of that book talks about the big fish, little pond Mm. syndrome. And basically what it says is that your child will do better to be the big fish in a little pond than he will, he or she will, being the little fish in a big pond. So if you send them to an Ivy League school and they're like just there by the tips of their nails, um, that might not be the best for what they're trying to achieve in life. 
You know, they might not get the support they need. They might not, what you think about yourself and your, the way that you perceive your own abilities is dependent on a lot of factors. And so you might want to stop and think differently about this. So then anyway, this, the kindness thing, since I want to get back to that, you know, you, your kid doesn't get an A or a B or whatever, you know, it's okay. Honestly, they're going to be just fine. Yeah. They don't, you can treat them with kindness. You can understand where they're coming from, you know, let them believe in themselves. And if you take a look at the fortune 500 companies, the CEOs of those companies, take a look at what percentage of them went to Ivy League schools? Like a tiny percentage. Or dropped out of Ivy League Or dropped, yeah, most of them dropped yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. So I think we need to, yeah. Well, but what's interesting there is, what's the psychology that gets in the way of a parent saying, well, okay, you know, you did your best, you got to see... But that's fine because you you try hard. I mean, there is a psychology behind what you call the, the helicopter parent. How how do you see that? What drives parents to be so aggressive? Unfortunately, the answer to that question is that the child, the success of the child, they see that as a reflection on them, and so. They wear, that's especially in that college scandal, you wear the badge of the child's college on their shoulder. So your child is, I, there's a, um, a big picture of me in this uh, United Kingdom newspaper, and I'm sitting there with my dog, Timmy, on my lap, white dog. And the caption under that says, your child is not your pet. <laughs> because I think what happens in a lot of cases is that people subconsciously, because maybe it's not even on the conscious level, they feel that their own self-esteem is reflected in where their child is going to college. Because it's kind of like a show, but it's not. Yeah. You know, that's a human being, not a, not a pet. Right. And um, so that's one of the things that I think it's important for everybody to realize. I should should also tell you, you know, all three of my daughters, they're very successful. All three of them came back from college and had no idea what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. Not a single one had an interview anywhere when they graduated from college. So the only rule I had is like, you can't just sit in home in your bed. You're going to have to do something. And Since you mentioned your three daughters, let's get it on the record. What the three ended up doing after they didn't know what they were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> it took them a while, I should yeah. just tell you. It was not a straight shot to the top. Yeah. Um, so Susan, the oldest one, is the CEO of YouTube. And... Um, Janet, number two, is a professor of pediatrics at UCSF Medical School. And Anne, the third one, is the founder or co-founder and CEO of 23andMe, the personal genetics company. So if you thought that's, they just went straight from college to that position, 
No, no, they didn't. <laughs> so how, did, how did you bite your tongue to, to, during that period? Uh, Going well, back to T-R-I-C-K. Well, you know what it was? I figured that, it, you know, I had this philosophy. It was I'd given them all the tools they needed for a good life. They could think. They had a good college degree. They um, had everything going for them. Now it was their turn to make a decision and their turn mm. to use it. And so I just said, you know, whatever you're going to do, you better do it because you can't stay here at home, you know, and do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so go babysit. So, well, so Susan, <laughs> yeah, Susan decided that she was actually going to go to India. I am not kidding. You know, and one week to the next week, she decided that's what she was going to do. Um, so Good. she did. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, and Janet, she decided that she would, um, she wanted to spend some time in South Africa. I was like, why South Africa? So I don't know. She's interested in Africa. It was ranked the number one most dangerous place outside a war zone. And there were no phones, and there was no way to be in touch. So I was like, Why, what are you going to be doing? She didn't know. Um, so I said, well, how am I going to be in touch? She's like, I'll send you a letter. <laughs> <laughs> this is respect. I was like, okay, whatever. So off yeah. she flew to South Africa. Yeah. And then Anne, Anne decided she didn't really even want to work. You know, she would... but. The, the rule was you had to do something. So she decided she wanted, she had a degree in biology, molecular biology from Yale. And she decided she wanted to be a babysitter. <laughs> it's like, and she hung up this little three by five card at the local swim club and she's like, babysitter available, Yale trained. <laughs> you know, she was inundated. <laughs> with everybody that wanted her. <laughs> but you followed your own advice. I, mean, it, I did. And I was yeah. like, well, maybe it, she'll get tired of this yeah. at some point. Well, she did, fortunately. There's a subspecies of the helicopter parent you talk about, the tiger mom. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the tiger mom. So I had a debate, a live debate with the tiger mom. In Mexico, it's online. Amy Chua versus me. <laughs> <laughs> it's on YouTube. I've, it's on YouTube. Right. I don't know if you've seen it. Of yes. <laughs> um, and so the Tiger Mom acted in a very tiger-like way with me also. We were given 30 minutes, and after 20 minutes, she was still talking. She wouldn't oh. stop. <laughs> so then finally, the guy that was the moderator came up and was like, oh, I think you, know, you might want to give her a little time. She's only got 10 minutes left. Yeah. So I got my time, and um, she had said in her first 20 minutes how difficult it was to be a parent, how much she hated it, how she had to force her kids to do this and force her kids to do that, and but it was in their best interest, and she went on and on about it. Actually, if you haven't read her book, it's all in the book. She admitted to everything. And so then, in my 10 minutes that were remaining... I said, basically, well, I love being a mom. You know, for me, it was an exciting experiment, actually. I was trying out all my wonderful parenting techniques on my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> and I was very successful. They all seemed to be pretty happy, and so it was fun. And um, so at the end of the, of the um, 
10 minutes to 30. It actually, they gave me five more minutes, 35 minutes. The moderator came back online and back on stage, I should say. And he said, uh, well, just like to find out, you know, so how did your end product turn out? And so they asked her, and she's like, well, uh, one daughter's in college and the other one is uh, trying to decide what she's going to do. And then they asked me. And so it's kind of hard to compete with me. <laughs> right. So anyway, I got a standing ovation. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, we have some good audience questions, and I'd like to weave those in. Um, one is an interesting um, concept, that, that because as you've been teaching for, I don't want to guess how many years now, but oh, over 30, 20... Thir- no, 36. 36, okay. Yeah. So you've seen different generations, we now name our generations, right, um, move through, and and what differences do you see in in the generations and how you maybe approach uh, both, would approach both parenting and teaching? Well, I would say that this generation now, they are more fearful Mm-hmm. Um, there are more rules, and um, I think that is the result of what's going on in the country. Uh, so, for example, we have um, every couple of months we have to have lockdown drills, and a lockdown drill means that you take the furniture in the classroom and you cover all the doors with the furniture, and the kids are all hiding in different places. Um, and it sends a message, you know, it's a scary situation. And we have more kids now that are on anti-anxiety medications than I've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. Uh, also I think they're afraid to hear opinions that don't agree with their opinions. They seem to be more, um, I think the school is actually worried even that, uh, you know, we don't want to do anything to upset you Hmm. um, because we don't. And so I think there's more of a, I mean, people are just more fearful now than Mm -hmm. they used to be. And um, I mean, I just think about in 1990, uh, we had the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, We ran a poll at the school on teenage sexuality and the kids were not afraid to run that poll at all. And we discovered a lot of things that made a difference in the community. Like, for example, we needed to make sure kids understood proper behavior and so forth. And today, now, I think kids would be more afraid to run polls. Um, maybe they're violating a rule. Maybe they're, you know, there's more repercussions. Uh, I think they're just more sort of fear than there used to be. Is that an externality? Is that because of the climate in the world? I think it might be um, because of the climate. I think it's a world climate issue. And also I think that, I think it reflects a lot of what's happening in the home. I think parents are more concerned and more fearful about what's what's happening. And, you know, is their kid going to get into college, the college of their choice? I mean, I had a student this year who had um, a three, no, a four point five grade point average with a perfect SAT score, and 
all kinds of activities who did not get into any of the Ivy League schools that he applied to. And um, he was on the wait list, which is how I found I had to write other recommendations. And so I think parents hear those stories and then they become nervous about it. And they're like, my kid's never going to get in. I was trying to say earlier, you know, a smaller pond might be just the thing Mm -hmm. for this kid. Um, But I think there's a lot of that anxiety out there that is transmitted to the students that was not there earlier. And to accept the smaller pond, the kid might be, the child might be quite willing to do so, but the parents see that as a projection of perhaps an insufficiency on their part. I think that's true, because the parents, as I mentioned, are wearing sort of like the child on their lapel. right. And um, so I think there's, there's more pressure than there used to be for mm-hmm. getting into these schools. You know, one thing I wanted to mention is that I don't know how many of you know about the community college track, but if you go, if your child goes to the community college for two years and does all the prerequisites for the University of California, gets a B average, just a B they fast-track into any UC school they want. Mm. And they they don't even have to apply. It's just like they just say they want to go, and there's some, mm-hmm. you check something. So um, I know a lot of people are devastated. Their child didn't get into UCLA or didn't get into Berkeley. This is mm-hmm. the fast-track into those schools, which I think is, I don't know why yeah. this is like a well-kept secret. It is. I've never heard of that. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> you should probably I would have thought publicize I would have. it too. <laughs> um, another um, challenge facing parents today is what we'll call electronic devices, the phones, iPads, computers. And this is an audience question. Uh, how do you recommend parents modulate the use of those devices within your trick acronym so those are first of all on the electronic devices my recommendation is don't have your zero to two year old using an electronic device <laughs> and you know you're laughing about this but I just want well, you to zero know the zero sh- is what made me well <laughs> I just want you to know <laughs> I've seen little babies in strollers holding phones yeah Okay, so I'm sure you've seen it too. This is not a good idea. Why? Because you're training your child to want to use a phone. So when they're older, of course they want to use a phone because they learned how to do it when they were little. What they need to learn, zero to five, is really social-emotional skills, how to interact with other people, how to interact with the world. And if you stop that learning by giving them a device, then you're not doing anybody a favor, especially them. So once they're five years old, then I suggest there be a collaborative effort on this. So you talk to them about opportunities, an hour, two hours, whatever, and then you use something called Common Sense Media. You train them to use it too, commonsensemedia.com. 
That's a way to find out like what are good apps, what are bad apps, what are good films, bad films, what should they be doing? And then discuss with them like how to use a phone or an iPad or whatever it is in an intelligent way. There's a lot of good stuff out there. It's, it's going to help them. But not if they're on their device for five hours a day. And not if they feel addicted to it. And so what do you do when you think they're addicted? My suggestion is you talk to them about it and come up with some kind of collaborative plan for when they're going to use it. Because, again, if you are the policeman in the group, they're going to try to violate that. They're going to try to go against it. So, again, I have this example in the book that is would be helpful. It's like, you know, I have, I have 10 grandchildren now. Uh, we went to Napa, you know, for a little five-day, four-day weekend. And here's all the grandkids running around, what? Their phone. So the question was, everybody's like, here we are spending all this money going to Napa, and we're on the phone. You <laughs> might as well just stay home, yeah. right? So the idea was like, we're going to confiscate their phone, said somebody in the family. Somebody else, yes, let's, you grab this one, I'll grab that one. <laughs> grab <laughs> Ten kids, you can imagine what it's like, grabbing phones. I was like, no, no, don't grab anything, no phone grabbing. Let's get all the kids together and we'll talk about it. And so that's what we did, got the kids together. And I said, you need to come up with a plan of how you're going to be using the phones because we're on vacation here and this is an opportunity for you to do something else in Napa besides be on your phone, right? So, powwow with all the kids. They're sitting there for an hour fighting, discussing, whatever. They come out from their little powwow and they're like, we have our plan. Okay, okay, what is it going to be? We decided no phones from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. None. Almost fainted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never would have done that. No problem after that. They, I mean, they came up with the plan, so they just all followed it. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, your, your example raises a really interesting question, and it kind of leads to, we were joking before, about your next book, um, <laughs> which is... These were your grandchildren, right? So who's setting the rules? You and your husband as grandparents or your three daughters and their husband? Or, you know, it's a lot different being a grandparent than it is being a parent. That's for sure. Right. (laughs) So talk about that whole complex of the parent, grandparent, grandchild That's the next book, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Because what happens, I realized, is that um, as the grandparent, you know, you might think that you have like um, a new opportunity for this is going to be your child. You can do all these things you wanted to do that you maybe didn't do the first time around. (laughs) Wrong. All wrong. This child belongs to your child. (laughs) And so they don't really want you to interfere at all. And um, that includes things like, uh, I think he needs a sweater. They're like, nope. You know, they decide, you know, sweater, hat, what they're dressed in, what are they eating, all that sort of stuff. So it's important for you not to butt in and to say what you think 
all the time because you're basically stepping on their opportunity to parent the way they want to. You might want to make some suggestions, but that could be just suggestions to them mm-hmm. as opposed to leaping in there with all the kids and saying exactly you know, what should be done. Uh, that creates a lot of... Um, that creates problems uh, because it is their opportunity to be parents. And they will want to heed your advice, but usually it's best if you just talk to them individually as opposed to just leap in and do it. So listen, let's see. I learned this one way. One of, the, one of my daughters said to me, you know, you need to stop being, stop bringing presents every single time you come. Yeah. I don't have any more room in the house <laughs> for all the things you're bringing. Mm. You know, I found all these really cute things whenever I went shopping, right? <laughs> I just like could hardly resist buying all this stuff. It's like, no, we don't want it anymore. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I got it. But um, so I think that that's one thing that is important for us to realize as grandparents. But so much of what we do is unconscious, you know. I mean, it, it, if you're with your kids and the kid is throwing food on the floor, you kind of look away and wait for the child to take charge. But if you're taking care of that kid for the night, you have to establish your rules, right? And and so I, it seems to me that kids are smart. They figure out what they can get away with with each of the grandparents and so oh, forth. Oh, they do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the kids all want to go to Target with me. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. They know it, that you'll let them go to Target and they can go get a haircut and, and it's no problem. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's like three dimensional chess. You know, so. yeah. It's, well, they need to know. So it's nice if you can talk about it with your children in advance. Mm-hmm. But the kids do figure it out. And so if you're stuck in a situation where they're spending the night at your house right. and they're doing something which is not allowed at their house and then um, they get away with it mm-hmm. uh, and then they report it back to, to the parents, uh, then right. you get in trouble. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I can agree with that. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. So, so you tell uh, them not to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you tell yeah. them. Yes, we're going to do this together, you and yeah. I. <laughs> it's in your interest no not to tell your parents <laughs> no. No. that I let you watch television till midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Oh, right. No, that you don't want to do but, that. You would never, yes, tell them yeah. any of those things. And the other d- <laughs> complex dynamic here is, is parenting is a team effort. And so, um, assuming a two parent household, you may be more comp- understanding of how to trust and respect and and collaborate and so forth than your spouse may be. And so it seems to me there has to be some kind of a, a negotiation there as well. Is that correct? Yeah, that you do have to negotiate with your spouse on yeah. this. Yeah. And yeah. Um, my husband, he's a high-energy particle physicist. Mm-hmm. And so number one thing he wants you to do, whatever you decide, you you know, what scientists do, prove it. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> whatever you say, it has to be proven. You have to have a whole red regimen of proof. So, um, yes, we do have different standards in yeah. this, and we have to collaborate and make sure that the kids understand 
what the what the yeah. rules are. Yeah. It's it's you know, it's not easy, but I think the trick formula gives you an an outline right. to help you. And I'm not saying that it's the answer to everything, but I think it's a guideline. So uh, sitting here and listening to all of this, I wonder how in your life did you develop the insights to be able to bring these ideas together? Can you put that together for us? So um, I grew up in a very different environment than my uh, children grew up in. So I'm the child of Russian immigrants, and my father was an artist, and we had almost no money. You know what artists earn, mm-hmm. like practically nothing. And um, so, and also we didn't have medical care because uh, they just didn't have medical care. You know, there was no, no way to get it right. back then. And um, so what happened is I had a tragedy in my life at the age of 10. Um, I had a younger brother whose name was David, who was on the floor in the kitchen playing with all his things, and he discovered a bottle of aspirin. Um, Aspirin, Bayer aspirin, did not have those lock caps on them at that point, and so he ate a lot of aspirin. And my mother, being an immigrant, and we didn't have health insurance, but she called the doctor, and he clearly didn't listen to her. He... um, was probably busy or, I don't know, something else. Anyway, he gave her the wrong instructions. He told her to put him to bed and see how he is in a few hours, which is, of course, the not... What you, you don't do that with poisons, right? Right. So, of course, in a few hours, he was violently ill. So then we went to hospitals. They did pump his stomach, but it was too late at that point. And um, we went from hospital to hospital. Didn't have any health insurance, so they wouldn't accept him. And, and to make a long story, tragic story... He died. And um, so as a 10-year-old child, the only thing that, I I mean, I didn't think about this consciously, but all it said to me was that, um, you know, I wasn't going to believe anything that anybody said to me, no matter what their title was. I didn't care what their education or title was. I was going to check it myself and Mm -hmm. see, you know, what was, Mm -hmm. um, whether it was true or not. So that um, basically made me skeptical of everything. And, you know, skeptical of, like, the way we parented. Skeptical of the... That's what was really behind, like, why I challenged the whole teaching system. Because it was like, you all have big titles, and it's like all this stuff is going on. It sounds like it should work, and it doesn't work. And I'm just like, well, I'm just not going to do it. Just because you tell me to do it, I don't care whether you're superintendent of whatever... That's it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it works, I, I can see it with my own eyes if it works or not. So I think that was, that was kind of behind yeah. my passion for trying to help people and trying to make sure that this didn't happen to anyone else. Um, you know, so that they would also challenge authority or challenge any of these assumptions that we as hold as true. Are they really true? You know, can we find yeah. out? Yeah. And so that's that's where it all came from. Well, you, but I didn't think about it on the conscious level. It was unconscious. M- marrying a particle physicist fit right into that, right? Well, you know, mm-hmm. I never thought about that when I married him, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it was just one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. But it turns out it was perfect because he made me prove everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would call that meaningful. 
what oh, he was doing. Oh, that's for and sure seriously. meaningful. And I, I am going to wrap this up, but I'm going to strongly encourage people to get this book, read this book, think about this book, and um, we look forward to the next uh, of your books on... You mean the grandparent grandparenting. one? Grandparenting. Yes. Yeah. For the next... You know, we're all living longer, and so we're all going to have grandchildren, well, right. lots of them, I yeah. think. And so we need how to know how to grandparent effectively. No, it, it's a very important point. Our, our demography now has grandparents are very active and participants in helping raise grandchildren. Right. So we look forward to it, and we thank you as an audience. Yes. Yes, thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.